turn to the passage of Scripture that uh, we were reading. In the prophecy of Joel, And again, you'll find that on page 1050. The prophecy of Joel and uh, chapter 1 and uh, verse 2. Hear this, uh, you elders. And give ear all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or even in the days of your fathers? Has anything like this happened in your days or even in the days of your fathers? Now, uh, like yourselves, the prophet Joel was living in very uh, unusual times. He was living in the midst of a a national disaster. And uh, unlike what normally happened, this disaster wasn't caused by invasion or foreign armies or anything like that. But it was a disaster brought about by what people would call the forces of nature. Judah found itself devastated by a natural plague, plague. And at times like that, it's uh, very natural for everyone to ask questions, but especially for the people of God. Uh, Is it the Lord's work, this national disaster? If so, in what sense is it the Lord's work? Are we just to understand it as his ordinary providence? Because, of course, God's ordinary providence involves good and bad all the time. The scripture tells us that God has set the day of prosperity and the day of adversity against each other to teach us certain things. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes tells us. So God's ordinary providence is full of good and bad. So is it just his ordinary providence or is it what we would call a special providence from God? In other words, Is a national disaster sent for a special reason? And does it carry a special message from God? And even if it does carry a special message, what is that message? And how are we supposed to interpret the voice of God in a national disaster? Uh, we'll see later on, not not this morning, but later on, we'll see that it's a very different thing to recognize God's voice on the one hand and to understand what that voice is saying on the other. These are two different things. And it may be easy enough for you today to get to the place where you say, well, God has sent a special providence here, and God is specially speaking in the providence that has come in this nation but you're not able to really say what God is saying. That's the situation that Joel was prophesying, and God gave him a particular message to speak in that situation. Now, our situation is essentially the same. We, too, have a national disaster. Uh, 
Other countries have it too. We could call it an international disaster, but for ourselves, it is a national disaster. Again, it doesn't come from an enemy. It has come from the forces of nature. And again, the questions are the same. Is it the Lord who sent it? If so, is it an ordinary providence, the kind of bad that comes with the good? Or is it a special providence that carries a particular message? And if it is a message, what is that message saying, especially to the churches? Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ himself said after speaking, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In the letters to the Revelation, when each letter is finished, there is the same postscript, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And uh, I make no secret of the fact that one of the reasons I feel led to preach on this particular prophecy is because I do believe that many people in the church are not hearing the voice of God properly in the national disaster that has come be before us. And uh, we'll see all that later on. But to understand our times and our providences, we have to turn to the word of God. <clears throat> we can't listen to speculation or human reasons and theories. We need our guidance from the word of God itself. And I know of no part of scripture which speaks to our current situation quite in the way that the prophecy of Joel does. Now, it's interesting, maybe many of you can say this. In fact, I've spoken to more than, than one of you about this, that I've often found myself in the minor prophets since this calamity has come upon ourselves. And one or two of you have said the same things too. And perhaps the minor prophets are uh, books of scripture that you've tended not to go near so much. Uh, but life's like that. The spiritual journey is like that. God takes us into situations where certain parts of his word come to life. That is one of the marks of ourselves being alive as God's people. I, I well remember when the book of Psalms came to life to myself in a particular way, just because of the way the Lord was leading me at that time. Well, so it is, I think, at this time with the minor prophets, and particularly with this prophecy of Joel. Because, as I said, it is set in the context of a natural disaster that has become a national disaster. No Midianites, no Philistines, no Assyrians, no Babylonians, but an infestation and a plague. You'll notice in the book that not a lot of people die. In fact, we're not specifically told that anyone dies, although there must have been some deaths associated with it. Nobody is taken captive from the land like they were before into Assyria or into Babylon. But this plague turns their national prosperity into poverty, pretty much in the twinkling of an eye. Four successive waves of plague which reduced them nearly to nothing. Now, if that doesn't strike you right away as very like the situation that we're in, well, I would be very surprised indeed. Now, I'll begin uh, with the Lord's help with a little outline of the book itself, uh, just to get the sense of where we're going. It's difficult to go through it without having a little vision of the whole. 
And as I do it, I'll just bring a couple of key texts before you, so you'll just get an understanding of what the basic outline is. First of all, the prophecy opens with a, a graphic description of the natural disaster. In verse 4, we're told simply that what the chewing locust has left, not much, the swarming locust has now eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, uh, still less, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust has left, less still, the consuming locust has eaten. So there's a disaster, and it's caused by locusts. And after the disaster, there's a call, and God sends this call through the prophet. It's a call to the people, a call to the nation, to prayer and fasting. If you go down to verse 14, <clears throat> consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. And again in chapter 2 and verse 12, the same call is repeated. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And so rend your heart or tear your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. And he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. So the disaster is followed by a call to the nation to pray and to fast. And then in the prophecy, if, and it's a big if, it's a big if, if the people turn, if the nations turn, God will do certain things for them. Three things. First of all, he will deliver them from the disaster. Chapter 2 and verse 20. But I will remove far from you the northern army. That's a reference to the locusts. And I will drive him away into a barren and desolate land with his face towards the eastern sea and his back towards the western sea. And his stench, that's the stench of the dead, will come up and his foul odor will rise because he has done monstrous things. So God will take away the locust plague. And then again, he will restore their national prosperity. Verse 19 of chapter 2. Or verse 18. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land. And pity his people. Verse 19, the Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them. And I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. Again, verse 25, a text we uh, love very much for many reasons. We'll come to it much later. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, 
my great army which I sent amongst you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be put to shame. So God will, if they turn, God will deliver them from the disaster. He will restore their national prosperity. And last of all, he will replenish their spiritual lives, which is the key thing. This has got a, this has got two parts in it. First of all, God will pour out his Holy Spirit. If you go forward to chapter 2 and verse 28, and it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And then last of all, God will judge the enemy. Chapter 3 and verse 2. I will also gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. And so on. Now that's our outline. A disaster, a call to repentance. And if we repent, God will deliver from the disaster, restore the national prosperity, and restore spiritual life. Disaster, repentance, deliverance, restoration, renewal. That's, that's the whole book. Deliverance, sorry, disaster, repentance. Deliverance, restoration, renewal. And um, I've got a lot to say, I hope, and God willing, about all of these. And as we see them in the book of Joel, uh, let's ask the Lord, even here and now, to relate this to ourselves and to our own situation as God would want us to do. Now let's begin with the disaster. What was the disaster? Well it was an army invasion <laughs> but of course it's an army with a difference. I mean often uh, God would bring armies into the nation of Israel to teach a particular lesson. Uh, when they became unfaithful he would raise up other nations who were not God-fearing and of course, God's sovereignty is seen in that too. He can, he can give power and strength to the enemies of the gospel because he wishes to teach the people of God a lesson. So he can raise up uh, godless nations and godless people. And they would gain the ascendancy over the people of God. Ascendancy over their lives and ascendancy over their culture. Uh, ascendancy even over their religious life too. They would oppress it. And uh, that may turn into a serious persecution. And down through history, I'm sure you're aware of it, that when they became unfaithful, he brought the Midianites in, in the time of Gideon, or he brought the Philistines in, in the time of Samuel, and so on. But when the nation turned to godliness, the Philistines were defeated, the Midianites were defeated. And the people of God had life and liberty, uh, liberty to worship God, and they served him in the beauty of holiness. Now, when you read uh, this passage and the verses that we read, it sounds as though God is just introducing another army into the midst of his own nation and his own people. For example, in chapter 1, 
And verse 6, a nation has come up against my land, strong and without number. In chapter 2, they are compared with an army. We are told in verse 7 that they run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. Each one marches in formation and they do not break ranks. They don't push each other. Each one marches in his own columns. None breaks ranks. I'm sure you've seen, you've seen uh, on nature programs how many insects, even in the animal kingdom, are especially rigid uh, in the way that they accomplish things. A classic example would be the ant. The, the ant is compared um, to an army in the way in which it goes about its business in, in the book of Proverbs and elsewhere. Well, here, what we have is similar. The army this time that God has let loose, in mercy, by the way, because although we'll see in a minute it's a devastating army, it's actually a merciful army because God grades his chastisements. We, we saw that at the beginning of the first lockdown, that he grades his chastisements. Sometimes he comes at a moth, like a moth, nibbling away at our comforts. At other times, he comes like a lion. But he always grades. He never comes with a heavy chastisement first. comes lightly. He first of all speaks. Then he touches and he smites. And then he can take away everything. He can even visit a people with death. So really, although we're going to see that this army is a destructive one, it's actually a merciful one before a worse army comes. It is an army of locusts. Now, most of us wouldn't think of a, a locust invasion as a disaster. But the reason we wouldn't think of it as a disaster is because we've never experienced one. It's as simple as that. And none of us knows how horrific a locust invasion can actually be. I mean, some of you will be aware that um, in the news recently, there has been a severe succession of locust swarms in East Africa, and it's it's eating up everything they've got. But that in itself seems to pale into insignificance before the four successive waves that God has let loose on the land. First wave, people haven't listened. Second wave, still haven't listened. So ring a bell. Third wave, still not listening. Fourth wave, still not listening. In Palestine, they still refer to 1915 as the year of the locust because of the horrific locust plagues that they experienced that year. So it's always a thing to be feared, but it's obvious that the four waves of disaster unleashed here on the promised land were worse than anything they had experienced. As he said, has anything like this happened in your days? A locust plague? Well, yes, but anything like this one? No. Has it happened in the days of your fathers? No. Tell your children about it, and tell your children's children about it, and another generation too. Indeed, that's what we're doing here. We are listening to what God is saying. We're listening to what the prophet is saying. And we are learning about the locust plague. And we want to know what the locust plague means. What it meant for Israel. And what any plague may mean for ourselves today. Now, um, what happens with a locust plague is essentially this. That in certain dry conditions, 
the locusts come together and they actually change. Um, even their brains enlarge, their colors change, and they become extremely gregarious and they congregate together in vast numbers. And this happens when it's dry. And then when there's a sense of vegetation, they move and they move in a swarm. They multiply so quickly and they form into really dense swarms. A single swarm of locusts can cover 400 square miles. That's three times the size of Greater Glasgow. So think about that for a minute. 400 square miles. And you can have hundreds, hundreds of billions of locusts in a swarm. Now, these are just numbers. These are just numbers to you and to me. But I want you to convey what that actually looks like and what it sounds like too. And so when the people sensed the arrival of this army, even a smaller one than that, they were literally terrified. As Joel says here, uh, before them, in other words, when the locusts are advancing, the people writhe in pain and their faces are drained of color. And they recognize the advent of the locust by sight and by sound. Many of them would probably hear the sound first, actually, before they saw the sight. Unless they were aware of the sky darkening through their windows, they, they would be aware of the sound first. As Joel describes it, they sound like a chariot or an army of chariots when they are arriving. Or again, he says, like the noise of a flaming fire devouring the stubble. Now, if you were to speak to people who witness locust plagues, not of this size, but even fairly significant locust plagues, they will remark on that, that it just sounds like a dreadful fire raging towards you. That's the sound. But the sight is more fearful still. They are conscious of the sky, the sun and the moon darkening. A day of darkness and gloominess, clouds and thick darkness. A people are coming, great and strong, locusts, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them for many successive generations. And again, as I mentioned earlier, they appear in order, in a disciplined formation, like a well-trained army. Locusts says they are, Joel says the locusts are set in battle array, marching in formation, each one keeping to its own columns, none breaking ranks. And he highlights the fact that their resistance is useless. Some people try to crush them, they try to fight them. Uh, some people would just flail instruments at them. But he says the locusts just weave in and out of the instruments. Though they lunge between the weapons, they are never cut down. And the fact is, in verse 9 of chapter 2, they're everywhere. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. And they enter at the windows like a thief. They're compared to horses here so often because... <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever seen a close-up picture of a locust's face, but it looks remarkably like a horse. In fact, the, the Italian word for, um, for a locust means little horse. 
Why are they so terrifying? Well, because they eat everything in sight. They simply eat everything in sight. Their teeth, Joel says, are like lion's teeth. The fact of the matter is that they ha- their jaws don't like ours move up and down. They, they go from side to side and they function almost like saws, really powerful, and they just grind and eat all the time. They just eat all the time. They eat everything, even bark, plant bark and plant roots. There is nothing that they will leave behind. I mean, other insects leave things behind, but they just don't. And all these people were able to salvage was anything that they could quickly gather before the locusts descended on the land. As Joel says, they come to the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them there's a desolate wilderness. And they move on to somewhere else. I mean, they just descend en masse on towns and villages. They find a Garden of Eden, and once they moved away, there's nothing but a place that's blasted and desolate. Just like that. Just like that. This time, nothing like it seen before. Four successive waves. They're called here the chewing locust, the swarming locust, the crawling locust. It's as though each one just went a little deeper than the rest. It seems that they returned. They returned again and again. We're told uh, later on that the locust ate years' worth. I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten. So obviously the effect of what they did lasted more than one year. Each time a little worse. And the destruction is total. Look at uh, chapter 1 and verse 7. He has laid waste my vine. He has ruined my fig tree. Stripped it bare. Thrown it away. Its branches made white. So even the bark, even the bark of the trees were being eaten by the locusts. In verse 10, the field wasted, the land mourns, the grain ruined, the new wine dried up, and the oil fails. In verse 11, the wheat and the barley, the harvest of the field is perished, and so on and so on. It affected everybody. It's interesting that the opening address in verse 5 of chapter 1 is the drunkards. He tells the drunkards to wake up and to cry and to wail because the new wine has been cut off from your mouth. Now, I think generally in the prophets, there's a consistent theme of rebuking drunkenness among the people. Today, that would obviously include drugs, things that uh, desensitize you. The things that take away your power of reason, your sense of spirituality, and degrade you as a person, and degrade other people that you're in contact with too. There's a rebuke here. The first address is to the drunkards. But then it's to the ordinary people. In verse 11, you farmers, be ashamed. And you vine dressers, these are just ordinary laboring people, uh, property owners who have farms and vines, wail and be ashamed because the wheat and the barley and the harvest of the field has perished but so are the priests the ministers of God they've been affected too in verse 9 of chapter 1 we're told that the grain offering and the drink offering have been cut off from the Lord's house the priests mourn who minister to the Lord and again verse 13 
The same thought again. Gird yourselves and lament, you priests. Wail, you who minister before the altar. I wonder if some of them were mourning as they should. Um, It's often come to me in connection with, with everything that's happened in our own nation, with the shutting of churches and the cessation of services. Who mourns? Are the ministers mourning as they should? Why is it when churches are allowed to open that so many of them have not opened? Why is that so? Gird yourselves and wail and lie all night in sackcloth, you who minister to God, because the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of God. Joy has left the people, and joy has left the house of God. Now, as we go on with God's self, I hope it will become plain to us that the the virus that has visited us is very definitely from God, and that it is from God in the same sense as the locusts came from God. In other words, it is a special providence with a special message. Not an ordinary providence with a message, which can happen, but a special providence with a special message. In other words, it is a chastisement upon the nation, and indeed a chastisement upon the nations. I hope, as I say, we'll make that plain, and it's a sad thing that is not noticed. But for now, I just want to notice the similarities between the two things, between our own natural disaster and the natural disaster in Joel's day. And as I note the similarities, they are an ascending order of importance, just to make us think. First of all, there's the agent God used to visit us. Here, in the prophecy, it's a locust. It's no bigger than a paper clip. I mean, you could crush the thing, stamp on it, and it's gone. So feeble, creeping thing. But it brought the nation to nothing. What is the coronavirus? It's a microscopic thing. It's not visible to the naked eye. You could hardly even describe it as a life form. It is something that looks like it has life and attaches itself to the cells in your body and can indeed bring you to nothing if God so wills it. It's nothing. But God uses little things to bring down the arrogance of man. It sometimes isn't a big thing that defeats you, but a small thing. And what's more frustrating than a thing that you can't even see with your eye? So the agent is similar. He uses nothing. Then again, this is unprecedented. Joel says, haven't seen this before. Not to the degree, not to the extent. Is there not something about our own national disaster that is unprecedented? It's national. It's international. It's brought about a lockdown a lockdown to the extent that no war ever brought into this land. What has happened in the nations of the earth is actually unprecedented. God has removed joy from the sons of men 
and he has removed joy from the house of God. And he's done it in one fell swoop. There is nothing that could have accomplished what has been accomplished except the thing that actually did it under the hand of God. He has targeted certain things and brought these things to nothing. You'll notice too that the national disaster of Joel and our own expose our limitations. That's in connection with the agent used. The agent used is, is a nothing. <laughs> it's a nothing. But he's used the nothing to show ourselves that we are nothing too. The arrogance of man is our big problem. And the big problem in your heart and mine is pride. I don't know if you've identified that. That, that is your big problem. Sin is your big problem, and the biggest sin that you have is pride. That's what cuts you off from God and keeps you away from God. But this disaster exposes our limitations. In Joel, it's, it's put in the words of his own day that the weapons are used, whatever they can, to defeat them. But he says, these insects just weave in and out of them. The best that we can offer against what's come against us is nothing. Well, so it is with ourselves. I'm not saying that there won't be a cure for the coronavirus. I'm not saying that there won't be a vaccine. All I'm saying is that a lot of people are amazed at how powerless we've been against it. I read an article recently where the journalist was saying that he was surprised. Now, now listen to this. I don't know if you can identify with this or if you can identify with people who have found this, that he was shocked how his own confidence in the scientific world has been so shaken. Been so shaken. Now, again, I'm not saying here, of course, that uh, science is weak or that science is to be opposed to a religion or anything of that kind. I'm not saying anything of that kind. But what, I'm, what I am highlighting is that people who think it has all the answers are suddenly being shaken as to whether it does really have all the answers. His confidence in the authority and power of science was actually shaken. Not the ability of scientists. He wasn't questioning that. They were able people. But their reliability, he wasn't so sure. Suddenly they were disagreeing with each other. They weren't quite sure how this would develop, what form it would take, how it would change, what effect it would have on us. And it's nothing. It wasn't known a few years back. They were suddenly unsure what we had and unsure what would be. And this journalist was saying that it's not so much that I worry about what they think they know. Maybe they do think that they know more than they do, but he says, I'm more worried about what I think they know and that maybe I've thought that they know more than they do. Because, of course, that's right. There's this strange tendency to look to science as a god, a panacea, a cure-all, something that will eventually one day cure all our ailments, heal all our diseases, extend our life, and make everything fine. That's why in this second wave of national disaster, 
Nobody is still talking about God. One expert after another is being wheeled out, and lo and behold, they often disagree. Why? Because they're not omniscient, friends. The problem is with the people who thought they were. The people who thought they were. It's amazing that underneath all this lies the desire for eternal life. Like I said, the desire for the cure for all all diseases, the desire to elongate life as though we had a right to these things, as though the serpent is still saying to us, you shall be gods. Immortality of some kind, an elixir of youth. Well, it's not there. I've mentioned several times that when God brings his millennium around, it'll be a wonderful thing. Life will be better. So many diseases will be healed. And so many people will live longer. And there will be a wonderful peace in the land. But it's not the answer to everything. The millennium will end. The millennium will be followed by an apostasy. Even the best things in this world won't give you eternal life. They won't deliver you from death. The only thing that abolishes death is the Lord Jesus Christ and the life that he has and the life that he gives to you. Only in Christ will you gain what you are expecting from the scientific world. It's amazing, really, deep down, how many people think that we are gradually making so much progress that eventually there'll be nothing to hurt us or harm us. A kind of utopia on the earth. The devil's substitute. It always is, in whichever form it appears, communism or faith in science, a utopia on the earth without God. That's the famous silly song, Imagine Immortalized. Get rid of a religion and there'll be everything you want on earth. Not so. You'll notice too how the plague in Joel's day is targeted, just like the plague in our own day. Now, by targeting, I want you to be, well, I want myself to be careful what I say, and I want you to be careful in what you understand. I'm not speaking of the victims who contract it and die of it. I'm sure amongst these people there are good and bad. The saints of God are amongst them, as are unbelievers. And that's tragic for all the families who have it. But the real target of the plague is economic. It's the wealth and comfort of the nation. Now, it's astonishing if you follow Israel in particular in the north. This is true of Judah too, but it was true of Israel in particular in the north. The more wealthy and comfortable it became, the more it slipped away from God. I'm sure the number of deaths from this locust plague was actually quite small. That doesn't mean it's insignificant. But it's the economy that was ravaged. What God was visiting was covetousness and materialism. I was just reading in the psalm this morning. I I hadn't intended to read the particular psalm, but it's the one that says, when wealth increases, set not your heart upon it. It may increase, and that's God's goodness to you, but don't set your heart upon it. Um, It is the materialism and the covetousness that God has struck, is it not? And if you haven't felt that yet with the beginning of this second wave, 
you will feel it yet and I will feel it too. The fact of the matter is that we haven't even begun really to feel the repercussions of this. We are trying to delay it. And people look to the government to delay it. Well, I'm sorry, but governments can't delay things like this. What about the effect of the people? Well, the effect that's highlighted isn't so much their loss of harvests and their loss of wine and so on, devastating at all as all that is. Twice what's highlighted is the fact that joy has gone amongst the people. Joy. First of all, amongst the people generally. Chapter 1 and verse 12. It mentions the things that have withered, the fig tree withered, the vine, the pomegranate, the palm tree, the apple tree, the trees of the field. And then at last, surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. No festivities, no celebrations. You know, what, what really makes the people anxious here is uh, Christmas. Can we have a Christmas? I can understand why that's important for traders and so on. But it seems to be so important for the general morale. Can we have Christmas? I, I, can't, I can't remember any fuss being made about can we worship? Uh, can we regather to worship God? Must we close the churches? No, it's the festivities. What's been hardest hit are the places of entertainment, are they not? Clubs, casinos, pubs. Now, friends, I, uh, as I'm sure you are, I'm sorry for everyone who loses a job. I genuinely am. I've been unemployed myself in the past. But it's hard to shed a tear when a casino closes. And it's hard to shed a tear when a club closes. Why? Because people are gambling and amusing and drinking and drugging themselves to death. And, and we need to recognize that. The, the problem in this country, as I said at the beginning of the lockdown, the problem didn't come with the, with the coronavirus. It came before the coronavirus. The problem in the country is sin. Especially the sins of materialism and covetousness, which caused God to send such a thing, even as he sent this to ourselves. Don't shed tears when these things close. I'm glad casinos are shut. And I'm glad the clubs are shut. That the places of amusement and entertainment are dried up and that joy has withered among the sons of men. Why? Because very often God's judgment exposes how hollow the joy was in the first place. I wouldn't wish to take real joy away from anybody. I'm no killjoy. I'm sure you're not either. But the fact of the matter is that so much joy is so utterly superficial. And uh, we're told that uh, in, in the book of Ecclesiastes, when, when it's highlighted for us, um, joy disappearing among the sons of men. Of men. Um, hold on, I should have taken a note. Ecclesiastes, and it's chapter 7. Um, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. It's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting, because that's the end of all men. And that's something we don't take to heart by nature. And the house of feasting won't teach you about death, but the house of mourning does. 
And it says that the living will take it to heart. So if you go to the house of mourning, those who live will take that to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. By a sad countenance, that's by the difficult providences of life, the heart is made better. The heart of the wise will go to the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of laughter. What kind of laughter? Well, he goes on later to describe this, because there's a godly laughter too. There's a godly laughter too. Um, sometimes the Lord does such wonderful things that you, that you actually laugh. I, I remember telling you before about the Harris blacksmith when he heard that the Apostle of the North was visiting the island of Harris. He couldn't wait for his visitor to go out of the room he danced a little jig around a table and was laughing with delight. There is a time to laugh. But it says here that it's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of a fool. The laughter of a fool is like the crackling of thorns underneath a pot. That's sometimes the kind of joy that was there. What joy is in a casino? What joy is there in a club? What kind of joy do you have? What kind of joy did you have before the plague came? Was it superficial? Is it superficial? Or is it deep and real joy? Is it real joy or synthetic joy? It's a lot of synthetic joy and inane laughter, like the crackling of thorns in a fire pot. Is your joy the temporary kind that you just enjoy in the club and next morning? Where's that gone? In fact, with successive exposure to the things that are giving you some kind of mirth or gladness, the effect of it wears off. You see, this is, this is the marvelous thing about the Word of God and about the power of everlasting life. It doesn't wear off. The more you experience of it, the more satisfied you are. Whereas the things of this world leave a big gaping hole behind them. Do they not? Do they not? Joy disappeared among the sons of men. But solemnly, and this is the very pertinent thing in verse 16 of chapter 1, and the very last part of the verse, joy and gladness cut off from the house of our God. So the church is affected too in Joel's day. In fact, the worship of the church was affected in Joel's day. We're told in chapter 1 that they had nothing to offer in their offerings. That the wine offering and the grain offering was cut off from the house of God. It just wasn't there. Because God took it away. God took it away. Now, when God shuts the doors of his own church... You can be sure he's speaking. In fact, I'm going to make a case as we progress through this that, that God is speaking and that this is a special visitation. But suppose I had nothing more to say to you than that. Suppose I had nothing more to say than the fact that the doors of God's house have been shut throughout the length and breadth of the land. That should be enough to make you realize that it is a special providence from God with a special message to the nation and a special message to the church. Nothing to give in worship. So they had to stop it. They had to stop it. And um, Calvin points out that the prophet is bemoaning the fact that they are so slow through successive waves of locusts. They're so slow to take the message on board. Even the message of the sh shut churches 
or their cessation of worship. What must their worship have been like anyway? Is the question. What was it actually like anyway? And as I mentioned earlier, that question is raised by the fact that when churches can still open, so many haven't opened. Why? What are the ministers doing? Why? Why not open? Amongst ourselves, what has been silenced particularly? It's the voice of praise, is it not? Joy has disappeared from the house of God. Where do we most express our joy in the house of God? Is it not when we sing, when we rouse our hearts and stir our emotions to praise our great God? Silence. And let's never think that playing a recording is the same as singing. It is not. It's not the same. Maybe it masks the fact that we are not doing praise because God has taken it away. What else is, what else is glaringly absent? Well, is it not the sacrament of fellowship? The bread and the wine moved from the house of God. Just like the grain offering and the wine offering in Joel's day, the bread and the wine, nowhere to be seen. What's that saying? Certainly, it agrees with the rest of our lives because our fellowship is so fragmented. We try and snatch a few moments, but it's not there. No, there's more parallels than that, believe it or not. But I just want to leave it there with you for now. Because we need to move on to interpret exactly what God is saying to us in this national visitation. So let's leave it there for now and let's call on God's name in prayer. O Lord, our God, we pray to recognize that uh, you do not change, that you are the same covenant God. You change not, and it is because of that that we are not consumed. And uh, you still visit churches, and you still visit nations, and it is our duty to discern your voice as you speak in providence. We are thankful that in Scripture, if we look for it, we find portions that relate so plainly to our own situations. Help us then to give an attentive ear and to recognize above all that you are calling us to turn to the Lord and to seek your guidance and help and the salvation that you offer so fully and freely. Through Jesus Christ, O Lord, in whose name we pray, Amen. Our um, last reading is Psalm 76. Psalm 76, and uh, that's on page 321 in your psalm book, to the tune Belmont. At verse 7, Lord, even thou art he that should be feared, and who is he that may stand up before thy sight, if once thou angry be? From heaven thou judgment caused be heard, the earth was still with fear. When God to judgment rose, to save all meek on earth that were, 
Surely the very wrath of man unto thy praise redounds, though to the remnant of his wrath will set restraining bounds. Let's again join in in heart and spirit to these verses. grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.